Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, May 22nd, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Swai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So Ben is not with us today because he's traveling but he will return next week uh none of us apparently have been doing anything because the section of the doc that says what we've been doing none of us put entries we've all been staying at home i guess no one's has anybody left the house in the last week i made some store runs yeah Uh, exactly (laughs) yeah i'm 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 following the rules peter there's nothing to do anyway (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's the problem. Okay, uh, let's move it to what we've been reading. H.C., what have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading The Parasite, a graphic novel and storyboards, uh, a graphic novel. It compiles all of Bong Joon-ho's storyboards into graphic novel form and was recently uh, published uh, May 19th. I got a sneak peek of it and um, wrote it up wrote up some sort of fun facts from the uh, the graphic novels uh, that was published on Slash Film. But it's a, it's a really great sort of illuminating and fun read. Um, it definitely is such a, it's such a great insight into Bong Joon-ho's um, process and how exacting he is as a director and how like his storyboards are really just what you, ex- you see exactly in the final form um, of the film. And um, there are, are some deleted scenes that um, make their way into the storyboard but don't make their way into the film and there's kind of some fun color into it but nothing super substantial. Uh, we do see a full version of the Jessica jingle. So for those who are fans of that song that uh, Jessica sings to talk about her backstory, uh, there's even more of it and it, it reveals like what her parents do and her favorite kind of foods and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a it's a fun little ditty that goes that's uh you can read in the book and um it never really sells you on the illusion that it's a graphic novel it's very much just his storyboards that are compiled into one big um book but it's really cool read and um i highly recommend uh getting it if you can very cool brad what have you been reading this week 
Uh, so I, I haven't exactly read it yet, but I just got um, two big Industrial Light and Magic books because uh, a while back, I know you saw this because I think you retweeted it and asked a question about it, but um, Industrial Light and Magic recently had put out a third uh, book that kind of chronicles their work and special effects and everything, and I saw that there were two previous uh, big books that I hadn't seen before, and so I, I sought them out from... Uh, some online used book retailers, and they recently arrived, and so I thumbed through them a little bit because they're they're big, hefty, like encyclopedic uh, books with tons of breakdowns of uh, matte paintings and creature design and uh, miniatures. And so, like the the first one uh, is Industrial Light and Magic, the Art of Special Effects, focuses on a lot of the stuff uh, like practical effects they did on. Uh, Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and movies like that. And then the second one is Into the Digital Realm when they start getting into more of the uh, computer effects, stuff like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, the uh, addition of the uh, cartoons and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, ghost, stuff in Ghostbusters 2, the uh, repurposing of newsreel footage with Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump, uh, and all sorts of stuff. And these um, th- these books are just so big and informative and they have like cool fold out pages uh that show off like these gorgeous big matte paintings and the uh the holes that they have in them where they would um put in the footage that they actually shot to put inside of the matte painting for uh these cool trick shots and it's uh these are awesome books i'm i would like to take the time to dig into them sometime soon and actually get to you know reading through them as opposed to just you know taking a passing glance yeah, I love matte paintings. Like, I, I've been lucky to go to ILM a couple times, and there's this one matte painting, which is, like, in the first hallway. Like, if you're ever lucky to go there and you're invited by, you know, someone who works there, they they have, like, this one hallway that has a bunch of matte paintings. Some from, like, movies you don't care about. Like, I think there's, like, one from, like, Die Hard 2. But it's still, like, great to see the art. But the one that I am, like, most in awe of is, like, this – there's this matte painting uh, from – I think one of Kira Kurosawa's last films. I forget which one. It looks like this big... I'd have to pull it up. But uh, not only is it a beautiful matte painting, but it was actually painted by Kira Kurosawa himself. So, nice. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I think I have the, the Into the Digital Realm book. It, it's just a great book to like flip through and like look at the photos and stuff. But uh, not, not to say that it's not worth reading, but it's like Peter. one of those... I believe that movie is called Dreams, by yeah, the way. Yes, it is Dreams. You were, I was going to say that, but I didn't want to be wrong. But yes, <laughs> uh, it, it is one of the coolest things there. I remember uh, when I was interviewing uh, Ryan Johnson for Last Jedi, we were just geeking out about all the stuff um, in ILM. And I, I, I told him that was my favorite thing in that in that building. And he was like, wow, because I, I asked him and he I forget what he came with the response. I have it on audio somewhere. But like he was like, oh, from now on, if anybody asks me, I'm going to say that. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, anyways, uh, actually, I wasn't going to mention this here, but I've um, this past week I did this video on uh, Galaxy's Edge for Ordinary Adventures. Uh, Galaxy's Edge has this location. Brad, you were there. There's this this. The store, it's like an antique store. It's a den of antiquities. It's uh, uh, its run by this guy named Doc Ondar. And it's basically this gigantic room that is filled from head to toe with Star Wars props and Easter eggs. And there's, I want to say, like maybe a thousand items hanging from the walls. And we started this series that we're doing on Ordinary Adventures 
of like we're gonna take like one little piece of each wall and go down it and like try to identify every single item which sounds boring but what it really is is an excuse to look into the item and explore the history in the films and the novels the comics but also like you know the behind the scenes history like like the first wall we did was the the wall with all the there's like a bunch of creature busts and like there's a couple things on there that like are from deleted scenes there's like a, a some uh cre- these horse like creatures that were from solo a star wars story uh, that aren't even in the movie, but they're hanging on the wall there. So a- anyways, uh, this is a long way. Why am I bringing this up in books? It's because I've just recently, a- as Brad probably did uh, you know, last week uh, or a couple weeks ago, I-, I just recently went on eBay and been buying up Star Wars visual history books because some of these items are very hard to place. Like some of them are like, you know, some X-Wing helmet with a certain design and it's like me looking through uh, tons of footage of Star Wars movies, looking through Wikipedia. Uh, but there's a lot in those books uh, that is, I'm not sure if you've ever seen these. Brad, have you seen the the Visual Dictionary books before? Oh yeah, for, I mean, uh, yeah, I have the ones for the the new movies, uh, especially. But yeah, I, I used to thumb through those uh, a lot in my younger Star Wars fandom years. Yeah, it, it's very cool because it has like almost like all the props from the films, and then it lays it out like giving you information that. I mean, I guess it's probably mostly just invented for these books, but uh, it's um, I, yeah, I have all the ones for the sequel trilogy, but I don't have the older books, so that's what I've been kind of snapping off. I, I was able to acquire the the three prequel trilogy books for I think like a total of uh, twenty bucks or something on eBay, so good deal. And I was also I, I also found through my queries with this. That there's this book called Star Wars Chronicles. Has anybody ever heard of this? I I think I've heard of it, but I'm not sure what it is. I can't recall. It's this huge book. I, I guess it must have been released before the prequels, and I guess it's considered by Star Wars fans to like be the most in depth, like source of like reference material of like if you want to see you know a creature that was created for a New Hope that is in the background for you know. A split second you can see like you know photos of the props and everything and it's like this huge book and I, I i this came into my attention and i was like oh i need this book because everybody's like you need if you're uh, trying to accomplish this task of identifying everything in here, you, you 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 need this book and i looked up and it, it's a book that sells for hundreds of dollars so so i've been looking to try to acquire one on the cheap on ebay so they go for as low as like 150 bucks but uh and it's weird you I, i've been watching these reviews of this book and uh i guess it was just pr- produced with the kind of material that is susceptible to mold so like even if you get the book you want to like be careful when you're like turning the pages and stuff because even like the moisture from your fingers can lead to the book molding up and the pages sticking together. So it's not only like this book that's like highly sought and highly regarded in the Star Wars community, but it's also a book that like if you have it, it's very easy to ruin. So anyways, uh, I haven't been reading anything, but I've been acquiring books. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching Chris, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I finally started watching the the Last Dance, which I know almost everyone has already finished, but uh, I kind of avoided starting it because I don't really, 
I don't like sports in general. I don't know much about basketball. Obviously, I know Michael Jordan is. I know, you know, about that team and all that stuff. But I don't, you know, I I've never really cared about sports or basketball or any of that stuff. But everyone kept talking about it. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna, you know, what the hell? I'm gonna give it a chance because it's on the ESPN website. You can just watch it for free on there. And man, it I've I'm only four episodes in, but I'm I'm really enjoying this. Like I if real basketball was like edited like this i would enjoy it more just because it you know it's edited in a way to make it more cinematic and you know they have the the interviews and it's it it has me like excited about basketball but i know if i actually watched a real basketball game whenever they start a game i'd be like boy this is boring as hell but i'm really just enjoying watching this and i'm enjoying just uh learning all this stuff i really didn't know and uh, i you know even though Michael Jordan had like final cut on this and I, you know, I've read some stuff about some people being unhappy with how they're portrayed and how it's more about him than anyone else. Uh, I love that. You know, if you re, you know, even though it does make him look great cause he's a great athlete, it also portrays him as this kind of like lunatic. He's basically like Daniel day Lewis and there will be blood and that he just like, he has to win at all costs. And he doesn't like care what it takes. And I know it's just it's just a very fascinating thing to watch. I was gonna say Chris isn't the only one who's seen this documentary. Yeah, it's uh, I'm glad that you're loving it, Chris, because it's I've enjoyed the hell out of this. Um, I talked about it before when it first started, and watching uh, the new episodes every week has just been uh, infinitely rewarding. It's been so great to see footage from these games again, and just see how you know reminded how great he was as a player. And hearing all these behind the scenes stories, and I was actually having a debate with some of my friends. Uh, not too long ago about how um, the complaints have started to come out about how, Oh, all this is just, you know, a documentary glorifying Michael Jordan. It doesn't show, you know, any of the bad stuff he had approval and I'm sure he made sure everything and it made him look good, but you can tell by the documentary that not everything here does make him look good. And uh, there was a story out there too, about how uh, he didn't uh, have like try to stop uh, the director, uh, Jason, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Hey, here. Hi, something like that. I don't know. But uh, he didn't try to stop him from putting anything in the documentary. In fact, there were times when he told him to put more stuff in to like provide better context and like make it clear like what was what was going on, so that there was nothing that was left out, you know, left to to guess or speculation or anything like that. And so, a, a lot of the stuff that I've seen, because I've seen you know people like Horace Grant and whatnot coming out and talking about how they don't like the portrayal. I think it's just sour grapes from you know just old days of gaming and just you know general talk about not wanting you know, certain uh, events portrayed in a way that might make them look bad or, or anything like that. Yeah, I'm bringing it up again here because the, the final episode did air. I think the final episode doesn't reach the conclusions that the rest of the series builds up towards, which is maybe a little disappointing in the end. But overall, it's probably one of the best things I've seen this year. Uh, but yeah, if you go on to any uh, NBA community, uh, there's a lot of talk about what is said and what isn't. Uh, at the end of the day, Michael Jordan comes off as an incredibly talented player but also uh, <laughs> not a person you'd want in your life uh, but I, I do think there's certain things that may be glossed over but as far as a 10-hour documentary that's not just about Michael Jordan but about an era of basketball it feels pretty essential I'm, uh, I think that if you are at all interested remotely in in not just basketball but like defining aspects of American culture from the 1990s this is a must watch and even though the final episode maybe peters out a bit, I, it's hard for me to complain. Hmm. Okay, uh, this past week I haven't been watching much. I watched the I binge watched the whole 
new season of Magic for Humans, season three on Netflix. And uh, this is with Justin Willman. He is a uh, comedian uh, slash magician, comic magician, whatever you want to call him. Uh, and uh, he's done two previous seasons. This one, I think, was shot back to back with season two. And I will say it is a little weird watching this in the era of a pandemic where people are touching things and he's touching people. And there's like this whole segment he does where it's like, do you want to see close up magic? And then they they say yes. And he, he basically gets in their face with the stuff. And it's just very, very like it feels a little off putting watching it during a pandemic. But it's it's very enjoyable. I was a fan of season one. I like season one, it, which had some criticism against it because some people were saying that it, it's the, uh, criticized it for its editing, maybe questioned if there was some stooges and there's some visual effects or something like that, which I don't think there was. I think it's just. Uh, edited in a way that favors the, the comedy moment and uh, yeah anyways uh season two was not as good season three is a lot better the, the, the show does a thing where it takes on a certain theme and explores it through magic each episode i think this season basically kind of drops that a little bit and for the better because it's not like handcuffed to those themes in the way that it felt like season two was and because of that, it has a lot of lot more creative freedom. Uh, it explores like new things like Instagram rooms and uh, rage rooms, and uh, he does magic in a cat cafe, and he does he does magic. He performs nude, which is his uh, biggest fear, uh, in, on a nudist ranch. And uh, he uh, one of the tricks I thought was kind of funny was he does a card trick to a bunch of people. Like he has a bunch of he. Has a bunch of people find a car or pick a card, return it to the deck, shuffle the deck, and then he has to find their cards uh, after he's eaten a whole ghost pepper. So he's like dying. He can't have the milk to until he finds it, and it, it's actually a real ghost pepper. Uh, that he he does this segment called Spoiler Alert, where he tells you what the end of the magic trick is, and then does the magic trick, and it's still quite as funny. Uh, he. Um, I, I like Justin a lot because he – well, Magic over the years has evolved in, in ways. Like he used to have like the Doug Hennings, which were just like these uh, colorful and, you know, p- putting people in boxes and stuff. And then David Copperfield came around and kind of made it about stories. He was telling uh, kind of Broadway-style stories on a, on, a, on a big stage through Magic and even sometimes recreating – movies like there's stuff inspired by many movies like uh like james he does this one with by james bond he he's done orient express there's many things over the years inspired by movies actually in his current stage show which i think ben and i talked about uh, a year ago now uh he has this whole like 30 minute segment which is kind of inspired by et and uh but okay anyways this is a long way to getting to modern magic had the the birth of david blaine who kind of turned it from magic on stages to magic on the streets and it was less about the trick being this hugely impossible thing and more about the reaction of the spectators and uh seeing their reaction in 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 recent years i think he's gone more towards like having the reaction of celebrities which i find like less interesting but uh justin woman is taking that a little bit step forward like it's not necessarily like about that amazed reaction or like how did he do it reaction but it's about you know 
creating a comical moment in a real place with real people. And uh, he does it in a, I don't know, there's some interesting things here. I, I would say if there is one criticism, and it's the criticism people had with season one, it is that he, I, I think what he and Netflix is interested in, bottom line with this TV show, is those reactions and the comedy for the comedy to play. And it's not, uh, doesn't care as much about the magic trick. And because of that, sometimes there's some editing choices that, in some senses feel like they're cheating you because it feels like they're skipping over a beat uh, that would have shown you how it was done or, you know, it's, it's kind of deceiving you in a way In other ways. I, I think it's just trying to edit the magic trick in a way that makes it more funny. It's, you know, plays more for that comical moment. So I think that rubs some people the wrong way. Uh, I, I recommend Magic for Human season, season three. I'd, I'd definitely say watch season one and season three, uh, skip over season two. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed Magic season, uh, Magic for Human season three. Uh, and I also finished FX's uh, TV series Dave which is available on Hulu. And uh, last week, I think I talked about it and I had only seen two or three episodes and uh, I, you know, I enjoyed it, but I didn't quite think it as, was as brilliant as maybe uh, David Chen uh, did, did on the slash film cast. Him and Jeff Kanata had a big discussion about it. I do th- think after seeing this season as a whole, this is something I can very much recommend to all of you. Like I, I think this show, uh, is is brilliant in its own way i will say that uh chris who is probably never going to see this uh there is an episode nine that a uh, big plot point deals with uh the, the, uh, an animal getting unrightfully hurt uh which i would say you'd have to skip over entirely because it's a big part of the episode and it's you wouldn't want to watch it but not that you're going to watch it anyways chris <laughs> but i think you would enjoy the show maybe Possibly. I might try it one day, but yeah, I will I will skip that episode if I ever do watch it. Chris, what have you been watching this week? Uh so Fred Willard died last week, so my wife and I, we both love um Best in Show, so we decided to rewatch that. And man, that movie, uh I haven't seen it in a long time, but that movie's even funnier than I remembered it being. And uh yeah, I know I'm not like breaking new ground saying that, but yes, it's a very funny movie. It still holds up. Uh, on the complete wait, opposite. Wait. Is that his best movie? Ah, man, I don't know. I maybe. I mean, I think it's my favorite of all of them. I do also like uh, Waiting for Guffman. I mean, I like yeah. them all really, but I think this one is the one I like the most, mostly because it has a lot of dogs in it, and I like dogs. <laughs> he also get, he he gets more of a spotlight in A Mighty Wind because uh, it's it's a small role in Best in Show, but in A Mighty Wind, he's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as I was saying, on the on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I watched and reviewed Netflix's new docuseries coming uh, sometime soon. I forgot about the date in front of me, but I think it's next week, actually. It's uh, Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. And it's, you know, it's the story of Jeffrey Epstein and uh, all the sexual assaults he committed and how he kept getting away with it. Um, uh, and this was good. It, it's good in the sense that it's really well made and it's good in the sense that a lot of his victims are interviewed and they, they all get to, you know, talk about their experiences and it's great that it gives them a voice at the same time. It's a very, 
difficult thing to sit through, especially now when everything just feels extra depressing. And this is because the, uh, the, the thrust of this entire uh, docuseries is all about just how people who are obscenely wealthy really can get away with almost everything. And I, you know, I knew a lot of the details about the case, but uh, having them like all laid out like they are in this docuseries just really just made me just really just very depressed just thinking about how long this guy got away with all of this because he could, you know, he could just buy his way out of any problem up until, you know, the very end. And so uh, I, you know, if you're interested in learning more about this, this story, I would recommend it. I, I particularly like that it's only four episodes long because I feel like there's a problem starting to arise with a lot of docuseries where they're, they're way too long. Like, McMillions. I like McMillions, but that did not need to be as many episodes as it was. So this is only four episodes, which is a, a perfect length. But at the same time, it's it's not an easy thing to sit through. So I recommend it with that caveat. Uh, I also watched Homecoming season two, which I also reviewed. And I loved the first season of Homecoming. I thought it was really cool and, and really different and just the way it was directed where it kept having all these, these shifting aspect ratios and all the music on the first season was pulled from paranoid thrillers from the seventies, like uh, all the president's men and Clute and stuff like that. It was just a really neat, interesting show. And it really bums me out to say that season two is not that great. Uh, the, the acting is very good. Everyone on the show is very good, but it's really just filling in blanks of stuff from season one that we did not need to have filled in. Like we already know this We We could have figured this stuff out for ourselves. And so it just, it just let me down a little bit. And I don't, you know, I feel like it doesn't even need a, a third season at this point just because it just feels like there's nowhere else to go. But if you haven't watched the first season yet, I just want to recommend that again, because it, it, it's really good and you can get away with skipping the second season. You don't really need to watch it. So, uh, wait, wait. So when you say that, it has a satisfying conclusion? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> See, the first season, I feel like the first season has a really satisfying conclusion. Like, well, yeah, yeah that's first... what I was asking. I was like, say, you saying skip the second season because you could end with the first season. Oh, no, be... I think you're asking if season two. No, yeah, I feel like season one ends in a way where it really feels like just an ending. It just it doesn't feel like, oh, I got to see what happens next. Yeah. It feels like things are pretty much wrapped up. So I, I would recommend just sticking with season one and skipping season two. If, if you're in the mood to check out this show. Cool. Uh, I also watched um, a Korean found footage horror movie called Ganjium haunted asylum. And this is cool. I, I really like this. This is streaming on Amazon prime. Um, if you've seen the film grave encounters, this is almost the same exact movie, only Korean where it's about a bunch of, ghost hunters who go into a haunted asylum to film a, 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 you know, a ghost hunting show. And then they find real ghosts. And the first like 40 to 50 minutes, not, not a lot happens. And I was starting to get really kind of, I was like, I don't know if I want to finish this. And then the last half of the movie just goes completely insane and, and does a lot of really cool, creepy stuff that I haven't seen uh, done to death, in, you know, in, in a lot of horror movies, and and so I, you know, if you're looking for a a good scare, I, I would definitely recommend this because it, it it actually creeped me out a little bit, and I don't I don't creep easy. 
And finally, I watched The Lovebirds, which was supposed to hit theaters, but went to Netflix. And it's fine. Um, it's not great. It's not bad. It's just somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, the two leads are great, but the, the plot is so... What, what is this about? They, they're... They are. They're afraid they they've they're going to be blamed for a murder they didn't commit, and so they go on the run. And the whole movie is about them trying to clear their names, and it's it's so like predictable. Like you know exactly where how everything is going to play out. That it kind of robs the movie of any sort of bite. Like I I just kept thinking about Game Night, which is sort of a similar comedy. And that it, it goes to dark places and, and has, you know, dark stuff in it. But that movie was just so well made and so funny. And this, I barely really laughed at anything in this. So I, you know, it's, it's a fine distraction. Like it's, it's a fine movie to just put on Netflix and, and not pay too much attention to, but I, you know, I can't say I'll ever feel like watching it again. Whereas like game night, I would happily rewatch that anytime. And that's it for me. Okay, cool. Jacob, what have you been watching this week? I watched War of the Worlds, the Steven Spielberg 2005 film. And I know Chris spoke on this recently in his own podcast. But uh, inspired by that, I rewatched this. I think this is a really interesting movie that was really overshadowed uh, during its release. And the double feature of this in Munich makes for one of the most interesting periods, I think, in all of Spielberg, where he is not so quietly reacting to the events of September 11th. One, one in a blockbuster, one in a you know very devastating drama. And reacting to it, you know, obliquely, uh, whereas War of the Worlds is about the immediate civilian reaction and emotional turmoil of 9-11. Munich is about the military uh, and governmental reaction to 9-11. And they just are Spielberg operating on another level. No no one makes movies like him. No one ever has. No one ever will. I like Munich more. I think War of the Worlds does peter out in the last half hour, uh, partially because the source material does have an anticlimax, which works better on the page than it does at the end of a uh, big, you know, a, uh, essentially a big sci-fi horror movie, because uh, that's what it is. It's not an action-adventure movie. It's, it's War of the Worlds is a horror film, straight up. and Almost a thriller. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I love how it keeps the camera low and on the ground. Uh, I love how Tom Cruise's character, even though he's given heroic action to do in the final act, is ultimately a man out to save his family uh, without having to give a shit about the rest of humanity. Uh, I like there's no cuts to the Pentagon. <laughs> you know, I like that it's just you know blue collar people trying to get by. And it's it's a scary movie. Uh, the the sound the tripods make is terrifying. And I think time's been really kind to it. I think the things that people were really mad about when it came out, uh, namely what happens with Justin Chatwin's character, uh, the, the son in the end. Yeah. Uh, it's a sour note for me still, but. I think the film's overall power has not diminished. It's gotten, if anything, it's gotten more powerful in the past 15 years. And uh, I, I think that it is such a sad, sad movie. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. What, it, it's just, it's so full of despair and Spielberg's all an optimist. And ultimately I think he feels compelled to be optimistic in the end. Uh, but it, it really is a film that, that depicts you know, what it's like to feel helpless and under attack. Uh, War of the Worlds, I think I watched on HBO Go slash now. Uh, it's also, I just hit a 4K Blu-ray, which I'll need to pick up because uh, <laughs> that feels like the ideal way to watch it. 
uh, streaming on Stars, uh, 21 Jump Street, and watched for my own home collection, 22 Jump Street. Uh, was not planning to make a double feature of this, but I did. I think these movies are great. I think it's uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller biting the studio hands, feeding them harder than pretty much anything they've ever done. Uh, the, the closing credits, 22 Jump Street in particular, uh, takes the entire idea of a franchise and just destroys it. Like, you know, I know Sony wanted to make another 20, 23 Jump Street or a Men in Black 21 Jump Street spinoff, the idea they had. Uh, but with 22 Jump Street's end credits, the greatest end credits of all time, they deflate the, the mere idea with such ferocity <laughs> that uh, it puts a cap on these movies. But in addition to this being hilarious and being subversive, I, I do think the first one in particular has a really wonderful message about how temporary high school cliques are and how our best enemies are oftentimes actually our friends once you're out of the high school bubble. Uh, as 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, I, I love these movies. I know 21 Jump Street managed to get on our 100 Best Films of the Decade list, and I stand by that like hard. I think the movie is absolutely ter- terrific. Um, Braven. Chris, you've seen Braven, right? I have seen Braven. Boy, what a, what a fun film. <laughs> Braven. I love Braven. It's, it's a lot of fun. Braven is a is 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 a, such a great little B action movie. It uh, was produced by and stars Jason Momoa in that period between Game of Thrones and Aquaman when he's still kind of searching for that next big thing, and it plays a lot like a early '90s Steven Seagal film, like Marked for Death or Hard to Kill or Out for Justice. Uh, you know the good Steven Seagal movies, except that Jason Momoa allows himself to be vulnerable on screen. You know, uh, uh, Joe Braven, the main character, has a real John Wick, John McClane, Indiana Jones thing where he gets beat up a lot. He's bleeding and limping by the end of the movie. Uh, and that humanity uh, really elevates this, even though it really is a low-budget, you know, pretty much straight-to-DVD uh, action movie, where Joe Braven and his father, Lyndon Braven, <laughs> played by uh, Stephen Lang, a great Stephen Lang, uh, go to their cabin in the wilderness, uh, find out that's being used as a drug, as a store of drugs by some vicious drug dealers who show up to collect their product. And it's a team of drug dealers versus the Braven clan who destroy them with stuff from their tool shed, bow and arrow, hunting rifle. It's just Jason Moe and Stephen Lang killing everybody. Uh, it's a stream on Amazon Prime. It's exactly what you want it to be. It's just Jason Momoa in flannel hacking people to death with axes uh, in the name of saving his family. I had a great time. Garrett Dillhunt is a bad guy. He's chowing down the scenery. Uh, HT, I, I I need to mention this movie features a lot of Jason Momoa wearing well-fitting t-shirts. So <laughs> I'm sorry, I just can't go get over the fact that his name is Joe Braven. When he said that, I thought that was a joke for a second. I was like, <laughs> Joe Braven. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of the, it's one of the great modern action movie character names. Like I I still to this day want to go back in time and rewrite the screenplay for Taken so the main character's name is John Taken. Because <laughs> what a missed opportunity. Uh, Joe Braven does not miss the opportunity to name his character Joe Braven. That, uh, uh, that, that reminds me, just here's some trivia for you. Uh, in an early draft of Michael Mann's Collateral, Tom Cruise's character's name was Vincent Collateral. Oh, my God. And oh, then they, <laughs> they changed it. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. So, you know, before the movie you know got made, they, they got rid of that because they realized how dumb it was. But that's why it was called Collateral. Oh, that's that's another missed opportunity. I, if if Collateral <laughs> starred Vincent Collateral, there'd be three sequels starring it, someone who's not Tom Cruise, but we but they all exist. <laughs> uh, Seventh Son. Oh boy, this is streaming uh, also on HBO. 
This was a movie that was made by Legendary Pictures during the middle of a big shakeup, where they switched from Warner Brothers Universal as their distributor. And this is very clearly the kind of movie where they spent a lot of money, so much money, on a movie that nobody ever wanted to see. This is a fantasy film uh, starring Ben Barnes, Julianne Moore, and Jeff Bridges. And it's just incomprehensible fantasy nonsense. It has the exact same plot as Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, like down to the beat. It's kind of insane. Uh, but Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters is better, even though this costs significantly more. Uh, just Julianne Moore is an evil witch. Jeff Bridges is a witch hunter. Ben Barnes is his young protege. And I don't know what Jeff Bridges is doing here, guys. Is, did anybody else here at C7 Sun can help me try to describe the accent Jeff Bridges is putting on? No? Okay, I'll try. <laughs> it's, it's as if his True Grit character was trying to do Shakespeare. It is just his True Grit mumbly voice with just the hint of, like, of Britishness. And it is incomprehensible. I literally could not understand a word Jeff Bridges is saying in this movie. And it's hilarious, unintentionally. It's a kind of bad performance only a truly great actor can get. And it's clear that the filmmakers were so happy to have Jeff Bridges that they did not tell him no. They didn't, they didn't direct him. They just let him run loose with a voice that no actor, any other actor would have been fired for using. So I would recommend watching the first 15 minutes of Seventh Son to hear this accent. It's on HBO Go and HBO Now. And then uh, turn it off because it ends exactly how I expected to end. Uh, Alicia Vikander, uh, pre-Oscar win, is also in this as the love interest. Uh, yeah, that seventh son, just a leftover remnant, like a footnote of the early of the mid two thousands, sorry, mid two thousand tens, of the kind of movie Legendary Pictures spent too much money on, uh, and just flopped horribly trying to make happen because seventh son was never going to happen. Uh, and finally. This was a recommend, recommended uh, in uh, HT's regular column where she talks about uh, foreign language movies and uh, shows streaming. And it's Into the Night, a Belgian uh, sci-fi series about a plane that's hijacked by a NATO officer claiming that if the sun rises and the sun touches the, touches you, essentially, the sunlight touches you, you will die immediately. And he very quickly would learn he's telling the truth. So it's about this ragtag group of people on a plane departing belgium just trying to fly uh as fast as possible in the opposite direction of the sunrise uh having to stop when they can at like airports to, to refill and get supplies and pick up other survivors and ends up playing a lot like loss with all the filler cut out uh i haven't finished the series yet for all i know it it bombs in the last episode uh but so far i'm really compelled by it if you really enjoyed the character episodes of lost were like instead of smoke monsters it was characters like in a rough sci-fi situation, like bouncing off each other, trying to decide what rules matter now in this era where the rules have thrown out the window. It, uh, it, it is, it's very good. Uh, HE does it first season or the only season. I don't know if it's, if it has a cliffhanger or not. Does it stick to landing? Uh, not really. I have to admit, I didn't finish watching this because I watched the first uh, like three episodes and the first episode is so good. It plays like this tight little, thriller where you're not sure what is the truth and the that paranoia that that feeds into it is so good and, and that it kind of once it becomes a straightforward like sci-fi chase movie it it becomes a little bit less interesting for me like it's just like the character drama which is which is good but um yeah like i i think that it starts off really strong and kind of peters out but um i well, i do want to i do have to say one thing about this and this is more of a complaint about netflix than anything into the night is a belgian series uh that's the primary language is french uh when i first started playing this on my apple tv um it 
automatically went to the English dub and it took me forever to figure out what the original language was because I just kind of started watching it blindly. I'm like, wait, what is this supposed to be? And I like played around with several of the options, which were like German, Spanish, until I finally landed on French. And then I kept switching back to English, which really annoyed me. But one thing that really um, kind of threw me off is that this is supposed to be a, sort of like a very international show, like a uh, story. And um, it's about all these characters who a lot of them don't come from the same um, land or culture. And they struggle to communicate a lot uh, because they speak different languages. And it's just so interesting to me, like what if it's it, dubbed in English, what is supposed to be the reason for that barrier like do they just say not understand each other's accents or something so that's just like a minor complaint I have not minor major complaint I have against Netflix and its dubbing policies but yes <laughs> it's good and like the first episode is really really good stuff I, I actually think the second episode is a little bit better so I, I, I think that even when the sci-fi stuff after really kicking the high gear I was still really enjoying it I just haven't finished it yet the uh, second episode uh, is a big swerve from where I thought it was going to go. And that's where they start really playing with language stuff. Like there's an entire subplot involving characters who only speak English uh, in the same room with people who are speaking French about them. And it's really tense. Uh, that's end of the night. It's six episodes on Netflix. I'm wondering if there's like a place in Netflix that you can set your default, like dub language. Do you know what I mean? Like that you could put like the default as the original I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure there is if you go to the the audio settings. I could I'm, be completely I'm try- wrong. But- I'm just trying to save HT from this this horror in future, you know, viewing on Netflix. What language is it in? It's it's in French. Well, HT, why don't you learn French and that'll I actually solve do know this- French, so well, then you what know- are you complaining about, young lady? <laughs> no, <laughs> the problem was the audio was in um English, so it took me a while to figure out what the original audio was. Oh, okay, I see. Well, anyways, I, I want to say, Jacob, uh, War of the Worlds for me, I think I really think if that last 15 minutes were different, that I think this would be considered like one of the like much higher in Spielberg's like filmology. I, I'm not gonna say one of his best because obviously it's not quite up there, but like. I don't know. Do you you say that he? Yes, I know Spielberg is an optimist, but I'm wondering. And I'm I'm wondering, Chris here too. Do do you think, like, with the ending of this uh, of War of the World, that he is leaning into his optimism, or I feel like honestly, like in his older age, when he tries to appeal to the masses and give them what they want, he ends up not knowing like it it, it feels to me like he's more of doing that than leaning into his optimism i don't know it's a good question i would love to know you know the exact reasoning here but i'm reminded of um a completely different filmmaker but when i spoke to uh mike flanagan about dr sleep uh that interview was actually ran ran on this podcast talked about how as he got older became a father he couldn't make dark choices as dark choices anymore in his filmmaking he had to find a, a bright he had to find a bright side because the thought of of a dark world where his children were doomed uh, depressed him so much. And I really think that Spielberg has a similar thing where I think Spielberg, you know, he's really in touch with the idea of family and the idea of hope and the very, very few occasions where he has not embraced that, uh, like AI, for example, where he's following the Kubrick uh, playbook. 
uh, I maybe don't clearly don't feel like him. So I, I'm curious more. Chris is our Spielberg scholar, but I, I feel like this is a self-defeating decision made by Spielberg himself for himself. I mean, you know, uh, Spielberg is is not just a, an optimist. He's a humanist and he, he wants to believe in, in the better angels of our nature. He wants to believe that uh, humanity can be pulled back from the brink of destruction. And uh, this is very much, as Jacob said, this is very much a 9-11 movie. And, you know, uh, even though it came out after 9-11, 9-11 was still a very raw subject. And it's him saying, you know, we'll get through this. I believe we'll be able to, you know, pull ourselves back from the brink. Uh, whether or not you accept that or not, <laughs> you know, is, is is up to you. I mean, I'm I'm a fairly negative person, as everyone knows, but I, I honestly <laughs> don't I honestly don't have a, a big problem with this ending, primarily because the rest of the movie is is uh so unflinchingly dark it's it's yeah. it's a unapologetically bleak movie uh you know tom cruise's character even though he does heroic stuff he's really not much of a hero in this movie he's you know his whole thing is he's not trying to really save his kids so much as he's trying to like dump them at at their mother so he can stop worrying about them and i i you know i i love how flawed he is i love there's a scene where Tom Cruise tries to make a sandwich and it's clear that Tom Cruise has never made a sandwich in his entire life. <laughs> so he's just like having real trouble with it. And, uh, you know, I, you know, you could also, if you want to get really crazy, there are, there are people and they have, people have the similar thought for the ending of minority report where you could, you could, uh, have a, a fan theory that his son really isn't there. He's just sort of like imagining, imagining that, that yeah. he's, he's showing up at that house and you know, in his wildest dreams, his son will be there waiting for him. Kind of like the end of uh, the 25th hour. If you were seeing that movie where, where yeah. Edward Norton, where he's being driven to jail, he has this whole dream sequences where, where he, he starts a whole new life. So if, if it really bothers you, I say, accept that fan theory. And <laughs> that's, that's my, that's my answer. Well, I don't want to say it bothers me. It, like, honestly, for me, I, you know, what bothers me more is probably how they defeat the aliens. Which I know well, that's, is that's is the is book, the book yeah. but yeah. what what like the book ending isn't good. Change it, you know, or maybe no, not. No, the book the book says the book was written under circumstances of H. G. Wells uh, writing an allegory for British imperial rule. Idea being, you know, you march into an unknown land, are triumphant, and then are undone, which is not. It's a very very different you know metaphor than what Spielberg's going for. Nine Eleven is. The imperialistic stuff of, of, of post 9-11 is actually explored in Munich, which is a whole different thing. So the metaphor no longer works for Spielberg's vision. Like I think that like the, the metaphor works really, really well in the 1950s George Powell film, and it works really, really well in the context of, of the novel, you know, 1898, when you, as long as you're aware of the context. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It's an anticlimax, and I, but it's something that it's so famous that you, got, you kind of have to live with it. I feel, I feel like I would be happier with the aliens not being, being defeated and you know, the fam- family reuniting and being together and having that hopeful, like, that there's another day. Do you know I mean? Like, that would be a more hopeful ending to me than, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I, I really like that movie a lot. I, I, I just want to say that, but I, I do think that it's, like, the last, like, 10 minutes of that movie that it goes from, for me, being, like, a 10 to it being, like, an 8, if that makes sense. But, um Yeah. 
Brad, what have you been watching this week? Uh, not a ton of stuff. I've, I've had about a bunch of other things going on, and I spent some of my spare time playing Call of Duty with friends, uh, so just wasting away there. But I did watch a couple of things. Um, HBO Max has a new edition of uh, Looney Tunes coming out uh, under the title Looney Tunes Cartoons. And I wanted to check them out just because I'm a big fan of the classic Looney Tunes uh, that, you know, came from decades ago, starting back in the 40s and up through the the 60s and 70s. And I watch them all the time as a kid, and they they hold a special place in my heart. And, uh, you know, they still make me laugh to this day. And I was interested to see how they revived Looney Tunes. um, And I was worried that it was going to be a thing where they brought them into, like, modern times, and it had a different style to it, and I just wasn't going to... you know, jibe with it very much. But I am uh, very surprised and happy to say that the new Looney Tunes cartoons are really good, uh, surprisingly fantastic. They tap into what made the classic sh- uh, shorts so great. It has these simple comedic premises. Uh, they feel timeless in their settings. There's, you know, no one talking about social media or cell phones or uh, anything like that. It- it's all classic style Looney Tunes stuff. Um, it, it pulls in some interesting, you know, small aesthetic changes from for characters from their uh, from further in the past. Like Bugs Bunny has yellow gloves instead of white gloves, and uh, Daffy Duck's persona is a little bit more uh, back into his wackier side than his smarmy, sarcastic side uh, that came about later. Um, the it has the classic score and themes and. Uh, it does. There are some things that take some getting used to as somebody who loves the classic Looney Tunes. Uh, obviously, the voices aren't exactly like what Mel Blanc used to do, uh, but they're pretty damn good, and they, you know, the voice actors still uh, bring good life to them. Uh, there are some uh, animation-style things that feel a little out of place from time to time, but it's not enough to take away from the overall, uh, you know, throwback to what Looney Tunes used to be. And it's mostly some of it is I think because animation is can be so much more fluid nowadays because it's easier to animate it in computers as opposed to when they had to do stuff you know frame by frame sketch by sketch back in back in those decades, and so there are some characters that feel a little more fluid and uh, wiggly than they used to be, and then every now and then there are these like throwaway side characters that feel like they've been a little bit influenced from animators who have worked on shows like Ren and Stimpy and spongebob squarepants um but it's uh, again it's, it's one of those things where everything else is so good about the show that those things don't really ruin anything for me and as long as you you know go in with an open mind and, and uh don't let those little details uh distract you from how great it is that these shorts you know actually feel like they could be classic looney tunes uh then i think you'll be able to enjoy them cool uh and that that comes out next friday yeah, uh, May 27th. There's supposed to be yeah, a bunch of uh, episodes available of it to watch. What else have you been watching? And uh, my girlfriend and I have been watching uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Celebrity Edition. Uh, it, this was a, a series, special series of the game show uh, that was so popular back in the 90s through the 2000s that they shot literally just before shows started to shut down so much that uh, the the sh- um, show doesn't have a live audience. They shot it like a few days just before everything started to go black. Uh, and so it's just Jimmy Kimmel hosting and a celebrity uh, contestant. And they're allowed to bring uh, the smartest person they know with them to help them with the first 10 questions. And then there's some sparse laughter and applause from the limited crew that was on set. 
Um, and so it's, it's all for charity. Every celebrity is playing for a certain charity and they, to, uh, to get the money that they win from answering all the questions. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun, actually. The uh, contestants they've had include Catherine O'Hara, Caitlin Olsen, uh, Eric Stone Street, Anthony Anderson, uh, Hannibal Burris. Uh, and they're they're all so much fun. Just, you know, the, the banter they have with Jimmy Kimmel is good. And uh, Nikki Glaser had an especially uh, shocking and, like, actually suspenseful moment uh, when she accidentally answered a question um, by saying an, an, an answer that was being deliberated, but she ne- didn't intend for that to be her answer, but she very quickly said it and said final answer and immediately was like, <laughs> oh, oh my God, I didn't, no, 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 no. And like almost had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> wait, so, wait, how like, do you accidentally say final answer? Well, so so they were, her and the person that she brought with her were had been deliberating about the, the answer to the question and they came up with the right answer, but the, the, the other answer that they had been deliberating was still in her head. So she just very quickly said it just oh okay yeah and so it just came out of her mouth and then uh, when she realized what she had done she freaked out and it it was like a whole thing where she she was even crying for a bit because she was so upset that she messed it up on something that should have been so easy um but the the judges actually uh overturned that they they didn't accept that as her final answer because they could see that you know what that what she had intended to do and so she was able to play on um but it's yeah if you get a chance to watch it's a fun way to pass the time i find myself being somewhat interested in game shows since that's one of the few things that's new and available to watch uh, nowadays, you know, with no television. So there you go. Did they actually complete filming of that series before? I I believe they did. uh, Because I I remember reading about it um, just before it was premiering. And I I had read something about how that they very quickly shot everything. I think in the span of like three or four days, they, they got it done right away. And so I, th- I think that they got all the episodes that they need, they plan on doing crazy HT. Have, have you finished community yet? I finally finished community. Um, I actually finished a little bit after the big community table read reunion. So it kind of came like all together at the same time. And um, I just want to, you know, give my defense of community season six. It wasn't always the funniest season um, or the best season, but it was um, a good send off for the characters. And it was very clear that like the setting and the, filming locations like the sound stages had changed and even like the camera locations had changed because it was just it looked like a different show once it had moved to yahoo but um it was even with like the change in ensemble and the change in the the like the productions it still like it's still a solid season not the funniest for sure but um it did feel i i will say that the final um episode of community is really really funny i laughed way more than I thought I would. Um, what was it called? It was like broadcast. Um, hold on. It <laughs> was called Emotional Consequences of Broadcast Television. It's, I just, um, watching it again just made me realize how funny this, this show really could be. And it it, it follows the, the, the group members as they pitch a metaphorical or like hypothetical season seven and all the different versions that they have are just hilarious. And it's just so non sequitur and funny and, um, get it's into each of their characters in a way that like shows that they really understand them. And, uh, it's a, it's just a really nice, um, send off for the show. So, uh, yeah, community season six, not the best season, but it was still like, 
a good solid season of TV, and um, it was good to watch after see- seeing the cast reunite in the community table read, which I had a lot of fun watching, and it was really good to see all those cast members back together again and just kind of um, riffing and um, having a lot of fun and telling all their inside jokes. It's really great to see how much chemistry they still have and how they still get along. Um, I I. I just was really happy too to see Donald Glover smiling. <laughs> he's just—it's—he's been so serious ever since he became yeah. a, like a Hollywood superstar. And seeing him back with you know the community cast and joking with them again just was really comforting. You know, it was kind of seeing like a, a bunch of old friends get together, even though they're not my friends and they're much more talented than me. But uh, I recommend watching the table reads on YouTube, and um, it's really fun just to see them all together again and seeing Pedro Pascal who uh, steps in for Watson Goggins. Uh, he um, just cracks up during the final one of the, the the big sperm exchange joke. That sounds weird to say, but uh, <laughs> it's it's really funny to see him keep breaking during that. And um, it's a it's a good little uh, half hour to, to spare. And um, community is always great, guys. Yeah. Uh, the, you know what? There's something I forgot to mention in what I was watching this past week. I came across I don't know how on YouTube. I was recommended some videos from this guy. His name is Riley Tench, and he is currently stuck at sea. I think he's work. He works at on Royal Caribbean cruise. He's a crew member. Uh, he's a tech, and he's been uh, stuck at sea for the last hundred days without anybody on his cruise ship. So he, it, it, not just him, obviously. Uh, he's there with twelve hundred other crew members on board, but there are no passengers because of, you know, the pandemic. And uh, he's been vlogging the whole experience, which I don't think you normally can do if you work for a cruise company. I don't think you're normally allowed to, like, film and do that kind of stuff. But the interesting thing here is he's been let go, but he can't get off the ship. So he's been let go as a, you know, a a person working for Royal Caribbean. I'm sure he's, you know, getting unemployment and stuff like that. Uh, But at the same time, the ship is finding it hard to dock. I think they're near China or something. And they're finding it hard to dock anywhere that will allow any crew members at all to get off the ship. So in these cruise vlogs, uh, some of these vlogs have like over 200,000 views. But like this guy's channel, I think he had a thousand subscribers when he started vlogging about this. He like, gives like a tour of this cruise ship, which is like, you know, completely empty and everything is shut down. It's, I mean, it feels kind of like, I guess like passengers or Wally or do you know what I mean? Like something like that where it's like, I don't know. It, it, it's crazy. Like how, how, how do you get food in the, how do the crew members get fed? Like you get to see, I, I've always, you know, I've gone on a couple cruises in the past. I've always been interested in like, you know, where do the crew members sleep what does that look like and because he doesn't work for royal caribbean anymore i think he's allowed to videotape his experiences and show the ship and he's giving like a tour tours of the whole ship and showing how everything's working and giving updates when he can because obviously i think he can only you know upload a video when he's like close to land or something but uh I don't know. I just want to give him a shout out because it's an interesting set of vlogs and interesting circumstances. And, uh, you know, it's like parts of the ship are just like completely dark because Royal Caribbean is trying to save money on, uh, you know, they can't dock to get more power. And <laughs> it's like the uh, I think at one point he says, like, 
the the ship uh they they stop powering the ship so it's just like floating out in the middle of the ocean like wherever the water's taking it because they don't they're trying to conserve on energy but uh it, it's very fascinating and he's staying with his um uh, he has a girlfriend that also works for uh, Royal Caribbean and she she makes appearances as well and it's also interesting that like just recently he got upgraded from the crew cabins to like an actual cabin uh like an actual like you know cabin that people pay for and it, it it seems crazy to me that like Royal Caribbean kept all the crew members like in these like small you know dank like little crew cabins all this time when there was no passengers on the ship but now they're finally allowing them to stay in like you know the life of luxury um but it, it's also funny it's also very interesting to see how you know panic takes place in this kind of situation how what you know they they have like a crew uh store where you can buy snacks and stuff and how when they found out that they weren't going to be able to get off the ship for probably weeks if not months how like you know there was lines and lines of people to they basically purchased every single snack in this little store and now there's like there's nothing to be sold there anyways i just wanted to plug it his channel is his name riley tench and that's on YouTube. Uh, but, okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, this past week, you, you you mentioned this in the Slack channel, that Taco Bell has a new drink that's called the Pineapple Whip Freeze. And you tried it. I did, yeah. I have. Um, I didn't even hear about it before. I actually saw it at Taco Bell. I had gotten that for dinner uh, once this week, and I saw it on their menu, and I was like, whoa, that's new. And initially, I thought it was just a pineapple freeze, but then when I ordered it, they were like, oh, did you want the cream uh, mixed in with it, too? And I was like, oh, yeah, definitely, because immediately my thought was, oh, man, this might be uh, close to, like, uh, a Dole Whip. And so I tried it, and uh, it's really, really good. It's it's not quite like a Dole Whip, because uh, the fruit flavor doesn't feel quite as uh, tangy, but uh, the mix with the, the pineapple flavor and the cream makes for uh, just a really delicious... Um, almost like a, a, a fruity milkshake, essentially. Um, but yeah, I, I was really uh, happy with this, and I'll, I'll definitely get it again whenever I go back to Taco Bell. You mentioned this to me, so I was like, Kitra and I are going to have to go there and try it out because, you know, we've been craving Dole Whips. We made Dole Whips a few weeks ago at home. And I wanted to see how close this was to a Dole Whip, so we went there, got some yesterday, and recorded a video, which is up online on Ordinary Adventures Day. But uh, I agree with you, it's not quite a Dole Whip. It, it it's interesting. It's almost like uh, it has a pineapple taste to it, but also has like, it's almost like a pineapple cream soda taste to it. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's like a vanilla mixed with pineapple, and it. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think there's some carbonation in there too, even though it's like a slushy. I don't know. Maybe it might just be just be like that that vague carbonation taste that comes from ices in general. Because I know that it's like that whether you get like. Uh, a Coke or a Cherry Icy, there's usually some level of, you know, carbonation in there. I'm, I'm not necessarily sure why. It might just be from, I don't know, maybe the reaction of the um, what's the syrup with, like, the, the ice and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but but we, we did that. I, I would highly recommend it. I liked it. Uh, when we got home and we were editing the video, I found out online that there's a, a secret drink that came out. Did you know about this? It's called the tie-dye drink. Oh, no, I haven't it, heard about that. It's a mix of the Pineapple Whip, the Mountain Dew Baja Blast, the Wild Strawberry Freeze. Yeah, so I guess it's all those. I put a link to it in the 
in the uh, Slack channel, but it looked, I, I think it's more of like an Instagram thing. It kind of looks like a rainbow. Like yeah, it's, I can. I see the picture you posted in the Slack. It looks it looks like it would be good. Yeah, I, I wish I had gotten it while we were there, but I didn't know about it. But now you know. Now you know the secret out there, people listening <laughs> to the water cooler. So you can go to Taco Bell and get yourself uh, the secret tie-dye drink. But, uh, Brad, have you been eating or drinking anything else? Uh, yeah, when I, went, I made a store run uh, not too long ago, and I got some new snacks that I had heard about. Um, so I love those Biscoff cookies, uh, I think I've talked about them on here before because I also recently tried that Biscoff spread. And they recently came out with uh, Biscoff sandwich cookies that have uh, different flavors of cream in them. Uh, unfortunately, I was only able to get my hands on the uh, Biscoff cream uh, sandwich cookie. So this is a Biscoff cookie that actually has the Biscoff like cream spread in the middle of it. And because it's, you know, obviously it's a combination of two Biscoff things, they're very, very good. And the two other ones that I, I hope to try at some point, I don't know if I'll be able to find them because apparently uh, the store had them at one point, but they sold out. They have a chocolate cream one and a vanilla cream one. So I'm, I'm on the lookout to see if I can find those. But uh, yeah, if you if you like Biscoff stuff, then you, you'll like these sandwich cream cookies for sure. And then um, Keebler has a new variant on those uh, fudge stripe cookies. Uh, and this one is kind of, a, I guess, a summer flavor. It's strawberry shortcake. So it has the same cookie base, but instead of the fudge stripe, it's it's a, a strawberry-flavored uh, chocolate, I guess, probably. Um, and it's pretty good, especially because the way the strawberry cream mixes with the kind of cookie that's used in those, it, it genuinely does taste like what you would think a strawberry shortcake cookie would taste like. Uh, and I'd actually... Uh, uh, made me actually want to try and put them uh, like in some ice cream or like break them up and make like a homemade blizzard with them or something like that because I think it would be really good. Uh, and then for for some crossover movie branding, uh, <laughs> there there are um, there's new Trolls World Tour Laffy Taffy that is available, and they have special flavors that um, actually hold on. Oh, by the way, while you're getting that, I I think I was driving through McDonald's the other day, a drive through or something. And they had a Trolls World Tour, like, I guess they have, like, toys or something in the Happy Meals. But there was, like, a big banner there, and it was, like, Trolls World Tour, and then in big letters, only in theaters. <laughs> and I laughed. Psych. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, so the, the fla- um, these are flavors that aren't commonly found in the regular, like, Laffy Taffy pack. So they have uh, strawberry cream, pineapple, apple pie, coconut, orange, and dark cherry. Uh, and they, they are all really good. I'm a big Laffy Taffy fan in general, uh, and uh, a lot of these flavors aren't easily to find. Like uh, the pineapple one specifically was uh, really good, as was the apple pie. Uh, so, yeah, th- I found those at Walmart, and I think that they're generally just around everywhere if you can find them, usually around uh, the area by the registers where they have all the different snacks and stuff. Cool. H- have you tried the Trolls Oreos? No, and I didn't. I didn't go out of my way to because they were just – basically regular oreos except they had like glitter in the cream and i don't need glitter in my cream or in my teeth <laughs> yeah and, and they're like bright colors or something right yeah 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 they were different colors yeah okay uh i did do some interesting food stuff this week i uh howling rays we've talked about in the past on the on this podcast is this famous nashville hot fried chicken restaurant that's in downtown uh uh los angeles and uh, i think Ben had tried it. He loved it. I love it. Uh, it's one of these places that you usually go to and there's like a two-hour, three-hour line, which is near impossible. And, of course, 
since the pandemic, you know, and social distancing, uh, while some restaurants have stayed open for takeout orders and stuff, it, it was just impossible for them to because of the kind of demand that they get. It just wouldn't be possible to, like, keep six feet apart. But uh, this past week, they launched on Postmates in a limited run, and they are somehow making a go of it and i was able i'm outside the delivery area because i'm all the way in west hollywood where this restaurant is in downtown los angeles but they do deliver to hollywood so i was able to go on postmates say that my address was like a parking lot in hollywood and order howling rays and it it got delivered to this parking lot i felt like i was doing a drug deal because I was like meeting someone in a car in a random parking lot in Hollywood. Uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Love Howling Rays. Uh, it was, uh, I don't know, it felt uh, good again to be able to have that. Now, if only they could deliver to my house, that would be perfect. But um, okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing? I've been on a, a video game spree this week. I. Start off by buying uh, Age of Empires 2 Definitive Edition, and if you're like me, if you were a, uh, if you had a, a decent enough PC in the early 2000s, uh, Age of Empires 2 was a mainstay. It's just pick your civilization. I always played it as the Teutons, you know, the medieval Germans, but also you know Japan, France, uh, the Britons, you know, just any number of things. You just build your civilization. You you know you build farms. You go hunting and you build armies and kill each other and tear down each other's walls. Ultimately, it always ends with people destroying each other. Uh, but the definitive edition is remastered, graphical overhaul. It looks like how you remember it looked, even though if you look at the old screenshots, it looks a lot worse than this. Uh, but it holds up really well. It's a twenty dollars package for one of the best strategy games of all time, and I'm enjoying it a lot. Speaking of remastered strategy games, uh, I've been playing StarCraft, the original 1998 game, also remastered in a way that makes it look like how you remember it, even though it looks better. And this is available for 15 bucks uh, from Blizzard, who makes the StarCraft and WarCraft games. And this game, uh, there there are a lot better games now. StarCraft 2, which came out about 10 years ago now, uh, is a big improvement in a lot of ways over original StarCraft. But... Nothing beats playing StarCraft with friends on the internet and trash-talking each other. Uh, I hate playing with strangers, but playing with friends, uh, it's such a blast. Um, The one upside to this pandemic for me is being able to rediscover online gaming with my friends and getting on mics and just having a great time with nostalgic favorites. I mean, there are better games, but StarCraft is just a classic and for a long time was the biggest game in the world. I mean, Korea turned into a sport, <laughs> for God's sake. And it mostly holds up. I'm enjoying it. And for 15 bucks, you really can't beat, you know, a really solid game that reminds me of a time when I could play this for hours and end without having responsibility. Uh, but the best game I've been playing is Gears Tactics. Uh, this is the latest game in the Gears of War series. Uh, you know, one of Microsoft's uh, cornerstone, keystone uh, franchises. I was never big on these games. I played you know, a handful of them here and there, and they're, and they're good, uh, but they're generally not for me. Uh, but Gears Tactics essentially says, what if Gears of War, but also XCOM? And as I've mentioned on the show before, the XCOM series is my favorite game series of all time. You know, uh, you know, turn-based strategy, instead of just shooting constantly, you are moving your troops from a bird's-eye view, giving, uh, you know, putting in position, coming in cover, making choices, making tactical decisions, and if somebody dies, they're dead. So you have these, if you lose a named character, you feel bad. Uh, it's it borrows a lot from XCOM and there's a lot of quality of life improvements. A lot of the game's graphical choices and uh, UI stuff 
makes it very clear that there's room for the inevitable XCOM 3 to really, you know, improve with time and technology. Uh, I still don't love the Gears of War world, uh, and the storyline leaves a lot to be desired, uh, but it's a lot more cinematic. The, the, the music and the drama of it is very exciting and gets a blood pumping. So if you're like me and you've played XCOM 2 to death, uh, Gears Tactics uh, is really scratching an itch, even though I don't love the franchise, but I like this game a lot. Okay. So that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please, if you can, take five seconds of your time. Go over to iTunes. Give us a rating. Write us a review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday. Peter. J- Jacob, I'm so ready for this weekend. Like, yeah, you know, this, this is a long week. It just feels like, Chris, doesn't it feel like the weeks are getting longer? You know, Peter, I was going to decide not <sighs> to read from the Gargantuan Book of Insult, Defense, and Infernery. Sharper torture, post, cost, equips, imply, put downs by Louis A. Safian. I was whispering to let you know you can end the show. But no, you started talking over me, which means <sighs> I have to punish you now by opening up the book. Sorry, Peter, it's your fault. It's, it's not my fault today. It's your fault. I've moved up to page 109. The gossips section. Uh, Peter, he has the words of a saint and the claws of a cat. Wait, wait God. so I, I'm the what of a saint? No. <laughs> Peter has the words of a saint and the claws of a cat. Oh, okay. So I, I, I say nice things to your face and then claw your back? Because you're catty. Peter has the words of a saint, but the claws oh, of a cat. Oh, I, I see. Uh, Chris, he seldom repeats gossip. The way he heard it. True. Uh, Brad, he always talks about things that he always talks about the things that he says left him speechless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. NHT, she's unhappiest when every member of her women's club shows up. Oh. <laughs> Damn. Wait, women's club? You know, Those? women, they got to yeah. meet together. and the gals, they get around, they, they yeah. hang out, Those women, they're all, you know, they're all gossips. Uh, I, I should point out that the vast majority of this section, the gossips chapter, defaults the gender pronoun to female. So I have to change them all for you. Ah. Uh, I wonder ones, like, why. About, like, I feel like there was one section where it talked about men who were, I don't know, cheating on their wives or something. I don't know. Probably. This book has everything. <laughs> Hmm. So is it sexist that all of the pronouns are female in that section? Oh, 100%. Louis A. Safian hates women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Everybody, have a good weekend.